Punch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 15. And uh, as always, an amazing episode for you this week, if I do say so myself. Very happy to have a couple of really interesting guests to talk with. But before I throw it over to them, I just want to reiterate my my, my weekly sales pitch for Counterpunch. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, and if you believe, as I do, that independent media is so important, given the nature of the media landscape, then I would urge you and I would implore you to think about uh, subscribing to Counterpunch's print magazine. Um, it's something that I think really provides a wealth of information, a wealth of material, and it's something that, quite frankly, is is not around so much anymore. I mean, print publications, just think about that for a second. The It feels quite good, I have to tell you, to get it in the mail and to look through the magazine and to flip through it and the artwork and the articles, the columns, all of that. You know, it's great. It's not a huge expense, given what you spend on coffee at Starbucks and various other things. And uh, most importantly, it serves to uh, support, financially support the Counterpunch Project. And I think that's really important. It's something I believe in tremendously. So um, with that being said, I would also ask you, if you like the podcast, if you appreciate this, go on iTunes, give us a positive review, help drive the show up those charts. You'll be surprised and amazed, quite frankly, how many people discover podcasts by going on the iTunes store and clicking through the recommendations and looking at people's reviews. So um, it's a easy and, quite frankly, free way to help uh, Counterpunch, Counterpunch Radio, and so forth. So uh, if you like the website, get the print magazine, help us promote the podcast, and um, yeah, do your part, I guess I could say, if I if I could be so bold. Anyway, all of that being said, having pushed all of my uh, all of my my wares to you, I would like to turn to my first guest, um, Ted Rawl. And if you don't know Ted's work, you've probably encountered it and didn't know it was Ted's work. Ted is um, one of the one of the premier political cartoonists we have going these days. He is a syndicated columnist, a cartoonist, an author. He is the author of a forthcoming book coming out here in just a couple of weeks about Edward Snowden. I'm going to let him talk about that a bit as well. Uh, you can find his work at anewdomain.net. He's also the editor of Skewed News. His work is all over the place, and so it's my pleasure to have Ted Rawl on Counterpunch Radio. Hi, Ted. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So... Interesting stuff going on these days with you, Ted, and um, <laughs> one, of, yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on right now, right this week. Um, so there are probably a lot of people who don't know what I'm referring to, so I want to I wanna introduce you and give you a chance to sort of open up this, this topic. So there is a controversy swirling around you right now as we speak. You were recently fired by the Los Angeles Times, a, a, a major uh, mainstream media outlet that was publishing your work. And, um, well, give us some of those details. Tell us what happened. What are the most recent developments and where do we stand now? Yeah, well, uh, the lead of the story is that they fired me for lying in a blog that I put up on the New York on the uh, Los Angeles Times website on May 11th uh, that that in which I talked about a 2001 arrest that I had for jaywalking in Los Angeles. Um, so they're saying the I what I described in my column was a cop who had shoved me up against a wall 
and had um, handcuffed me. And the scene had been so ugly that it attracted a crowd of onlookers who were even yelling at the cop until finally one of his colleagues showed up uh, and on a motorcycle and pulled him away and off they went. Um, and the LA, I was informed uh, just, just short of two weeks ago by Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter at the LA Times who I was unfamiliar with. He called me and said, the, L the LAPD says that you're lying, that you made up the whole thing. Not the arrest, but that the cop was very polite and nice and you had a nice interchange and you did not, uh, none of this other stuff happened. You were, he says he's never used his handcuffs is in his, in his entire 20 year career. And he says that he never shoved you up against the wall. You were never handcuffed. There was never any, uh, any angry crowd. Um, and there, and, and so he's denying all of it. Um, all there is, he's, is a polite interaction where the two of you are both being nice and, uh, and you made this whole thing up and it's this audio tape that the cop took surreptitiously. So the, uh, the, I talked to Mr. Pringle twice for probably close to two hours in total, and I talked to editorial page editor Nick Goldberg, who wanted to know what was going on, also for a pretty long time. I don't know how long. And um, he and I stated my case, and they both. It was very clear from talking to them both that they just that uh, they, they were determined that I was guilty. They said, you know, this this tape is really clear. So finally, I listened to the tape and with Mr. Pringle listening on the phone while I listened to it. And it was and I remember my first thought was, really, there was 20 seconds of the cop talking and then there were six minutes of noise, <laughs> street noise, just like. <laughs> and anyone who wants to can go to, by the way, a new net and hear that that tape that's a. Uh, that was that was released by the L, by the LAPD uh, to see what I mean. So I said, "This is a joke," and the and, and Mr. Pringle says, "What do you mean? It's not a joke." And I'm like, "No, it's a joke." And he says, "Well, this doesn't support your narrative." And I said, you, "It doesn't support any narrative. It doesn't support his narrative. It doesn't support. It supports his as much as it supports mine. As much as it supports his. It's just completely worthless. It's a he said he said story. Anyone listening to this logically." would just have to say, ah, we don't really know what happened here. Um, they never let me defend myself. They fired me very unceremoniously. They exercised the nuclear option. They could have just said, we're letting you go. They could have said, we don't have any more money in the budget for you. Um, I was a freelancer, very easily, very easily fired. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead they printed a note to readers that stated <laughs> that, uh, that in fact, um, that I was a fabulist, you know, like Jason Blair or Stephen Glass, that I had made the whole thing up. It was very clear from the audio tape. And as a result, the LA Times would never be using me again. Now, in journalism, uh, that's an A-bomb. You know, I mean, that's, that means, you know, you, very few people are ever going to have anything to do with you. That thing is going to be on the Internet forever. Any editor who's thinking about maybe hiring you to, to, for something is going to Google your name probably to see if there's any problems. And, and that, that's going to come up. And so it was devastating. You know, I was that that night after Goldberg. So to Goldberg told me he'd spend the weekend thinking about it. And that was kind of the first lie, because um, 
my cartoon was supposed to appear that day, Monday, and it didn't, which means he really decided to fire me Friday, basically after less than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Real rush to judgment. He took the LAPD completely at its word. And now, just to be very clear here, everything I said in my story was absolutely true, 100.0%. Look, I'm the first to admit you can get details wrong, you, your memory can fail you, that doesn't really make you a liar. And certainly, I'm sure I've gotten details wrong in other stories and stuff. But this just wasn't one of those times. I mean, it was completely dead accurate. And if people are thinking of tuning out, (laughs) I proved it. So here's what happens next. So on Monday night, on uh, so so on Monday night, July 26th, Goldberg called me up at three o'clock in the afternoon, LA time, to tell me that they would be printing this editor's note, then they wouldn't be using me anymore. I told him at the time he was making the wrong call, that he was taking the cop's words over mine, and that everything had happened exactly, not mostly, exactly as I had said. And I had filed a, a complaint with Internal Affairs at the time, contemporaneously, 10, 10 days after it happened in 2001. Uh, the cops just dismissed it. They didn't, they didn't investigate. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, or at least they never called me and got my side. So, uh, so then, press forward. This is now Tuesday morning, July 27th. That thing appears on the in the print edition and on the online edition of the L.A. Times. Um, and so I started getting uh, readers to uh, emailing me and saying, you know, I, I know audio technicians, and uh, you know, would you like us to if you send us the original version of the uh, file, we can take a stab at it and see if we can clean it up and see if there's anything on there. And I wasn't expecting much, but I thought, sure. So I sent it to, to six or seven or maybe eight different people all over the country, just, you know, yeah, just sent it as file attachments. And, um, and that was it. Well, by Thursday morning, the best version had come back. And it was devastating and shocking and unbelievable. Because there on the tape was a woman clearly screaming, take off his handcuffs, take off his handcuffs. Um, They were still kind of muddy, but that right there punctured a huge hole in the LA Times LAPD narrative. Uh, They said there was no crowd. They said there there were no handcuffs. That certainly cast, let's just say, reasonable doubt on that assertion. Um, So I kept at it. And on the weekend, I hired a production company in LA, Post Haste Digital, uh, because they work on the weekend and they can do quick turnaround and I, time was of the essence, that thing was still online. It still is. And I got them to clean it up. And late Sunday night, early Monday morning, a new domain.net posted, anyone can go and look at and go and hear that too, a far cleaned up version of the ta- audio tape that shows beyond a shadow of a doubt at least four discreet people screaming at the cop to take off the handcuffs um, in mixing it up with him, insulting him, his manhood, uh, making sexually related insults to the cop, the cop sparring back. And it becomes clear from listening to that tape that the cop deliberately zipped up his, his uniform to cover his mic at the time when the crowd began to approach. It also is clear that he used what must be a trick used by cops to obscure voices he whistled directly into the mic whenever anyone said anything but uh you know with modern technology you can you know people have seen this on television you can separate out the tracks 
and 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 get the underlying voice even if there's something underneath uh, um, obscuring it and so now there's this long transcript no longer six minutes of noise uh, it's, you're talking about minutes of dialogue. You can even hear the handcuffs going on. And, you know, I was wrong about one thing. I, I thought you couldn't hear the driver's license hit the ground. Uh, on the new version, you can actually hear me bend over to get it. Um, so, you know, obviously you just, I know that that's it, but anyone reasonable could say, well, that could be anything. But the point is that everything, and also there's very strong evidence, and that's going to, the only way to confirm this will be with an audio forensicist, which is very expensive, but I'll have to do it. But it's pretty strong. It's kind of a universal opinion that the tape has been spliced by the LAPD uh, in order to remove uh, sections that were incriminating for the officer. Ted, we're, we were having some audio problems, so um, I want to just make sure that uh, listeners really understand this this issue and the complexity of it, because I think that really the persecution aspect of this is a key part of this story that is really kind of not necessarily playing out in the in the headlines. So tell us about the LAPPL, what that is, what they have uh, bragged about doing, and how that all relates to what's happened to you. Well, you kind of have to you know, ask yourself, why would the LAPD care about taking down a cartoonist? You know, I'm a freelance cartoonist earning 300 bucks a week. What the hell? Uh, and, and so, I mean, you know, obviously it's until we get to, until we get to the bottom of it, uh, in a, in a court of law or in some other way, we're not going to ever know, but, but we do know some things that kind of point to, um, collusion and con- severe conflicts of interest between the LA times and the LAPD, that ought to really be illegal. So skipping, so I'll, I'll kind of spin this out and, and bear with me if it's, it involves some financial stuff. But back in 2009, uh, the LA Fire and Police Union Pension Fund announced that they were going to use, they were going to invent, invest pension funds into newspapers, uh, kind of a dying business, not the best invent, investment really, uh, in order to influence the editorial coverage. So they did that with the San Diego Union Tribune. Back in 2009, the pension fund bought a bunch of stock, millions of dollars of stock in the, in the UT, and, and within, in short order, were able to flex their muscle and have half of the editorial board, who was deemed insufficiently pro-police, fired. Now, they said journalists are not targets. Editorial board members are targets because they're hacks and they're just opinion people. Now, obviously, uh, as a car- political cartoonist, I'm an opinion person, right? So, and I was, the, on the, <laughs> yeah. I would have been if I were on staff at a paper, I would be an editorial. I would be on the editorial board. Yeah. So that's kind of like so. I'm, I fall within that purview. Now, skip ahead to 2015. The, the latest, the latest report I can find, the LAPPL now owns 30 million. Now has 30 million dollars of stock invested. 30 million. It's a lot um, in the in uh, Tribune Publishing, which is the parent company of the L.A. Times. So when the cops call up the L.A. Times, they're not just the cops, which would be influential enough. They're the boss. They're the owners. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about one of the four principal shareholders of the L.A. Times. Um, there's no way the L.A. Times publisher and editor is not going to pick up that call and try to make those people happy. Um, you know, they could really screw around with Tribune. They could dump a bunch of stock and tank their stock price if they wanted to. Uh, clearly, the unions not really caring too much about their members' uh, pensions uh, as much as they care about using the pensions to buy influence in the in the corporate media. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, it's it's actually pretty disgusting. So the LA, so we don't know if the LAPPL got the got the file uh, in the in the audio of tape, or if it was the LAPD directly that did it. But we know that um, someone in LAPD slash LAPPL uh, sent this thing to the LA Times. LA Times won't say how they got it. Uh, they won't say anything at all. They're hiding out. Mm-hmm. And you know, let me just tell you, if these guys had anything to defend themselves with, if they could prove any misconduct whatsoever, if they could prove that I'd lied at all in my piece, you could be damn sure they'd be saying so. Instead, what they're doing is they're not answering the phone. The LAPD um, public information officer, which anyone can Google their number and call them, so please do, and the uh, LA Times uh, people uh, are not replying. I've been emailing the editorial board every day asking them for in light of the new facts, to retract what they wrote about me, which was proven untrue, uh, to apologize, and to restore my cartoons to their pages as before, under the previous arrangement. Um, And they've just ignored me. Now, if they had anything, they would just tell me to go to hell, right? But they don't. And um, they clearly don't. And they're just spinning their wheels looking for something, but there's nothing. They can't even say, oh, one time Ted was late with a cartoon. Yeah. You know, there's nothing like that. I mean, my relationship with the LA Times was superb. And this guy, Nick Goldberg, I, I barely even knew. This all happened when my editor, Cherry G, was on vacation in Japan for three weeks. As far as I know, she may not even know about this. Um, mm-hmm. she may, she'll be getting back, uh, you know, that later this week. And she may know, she may not know, I don't know. But, the, um, but, but, Ed, but Nick Goldberg is someone who I barely met. And, uh, you know, we've never even had lunch or anything in six years. So this is a, um, so, you know, this is, this is, I think what happened here is that someone from LAPD, from LAPD told someone at LA Times, you know, wouldn't you please get rid of me, get rid of this meddlesome cartoonist? And look, we have this file. Now, I think it's important for people to understand that the first rule of journalism is check it out. Of course. So, you know, they got a tape from the LAPD, you know. And regardless of who it's coming from, I don't care if it's coming from Mother Teresa, if it's coming from the Pope, you you check out the tape, you have it forensically analyzed to make sure it hasn't been tampered with, and also to see if there's any extra information that you might be able to get off it, right? Because who knows that that could be even juicier for an article. Well, that's if um, they that's, were that's if they were genuinely interested in finding out the truth about what the scenario was, rather than using it as a pretext to get rid of some, someone who is inconvenient. Well, it's it's, it's certainly basic. Journalistic due diligence. Now, I think there's also a heavy element of stupidity and arrogance here because, frankly, if these guys had any brains whatsoever, they would have been, they, if they'd been able to see in the future and see that, in fact, that tape did have data that, that represented me, they wouldn't have released it to me. They wouldn't have sent it to me. I mean, anybody can get the same stuff off it, right? So if they were really just doing a, a hit job, they should have done some, They should have done it smarter. It didn't mm-hmm. take much for me to find that information. In fact, if you go into a really good sound studio with excellent uh, headphones, as you may have, you can on the original version you can hear everything. Um, so, especially if you're younger, you know you lose, you lose a lot of your hearing by the time you're my age. But I'm 52. But it's um, but but you definitely if you're like in your 20s or, th- or th- even your 30s, or you just have really good hearing and a nice quiet room. You could hear it all. They must have just sloppily listened to it and been like, oh, they just heard all the noise, and they're like, we're going to spin this narrative, and then that was that. 
Now, I think Goldberg, my editor, actually to some extent believed what he was told, what he, the story that I had made. He thought that I was telling a lie. And it's because he's so embedded with the cops and that culture and the establishment that he couldn't, it didn't cross his small little brain to think that maybe, just maybe, he should be careful and that, you know, check out the tape, really make sure this isn't going to bite him in the ass. I'm pretty sure that if he'd known this was going to happen, he would not have done this this way. He, he would have come up with like an excuse. If he wanted to get rid of me, he could have just said, budget cut, you got to go. But burning me was a favor to the LAPD. Yeah. That's why they did it. So it wasn't enough to get rid of me. They wanted to make a public example. Yeah. And they wanted to, you know, this is kind of the way institutions like the LAPD function. You know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And you know, these are cops. So, you know, it's not enough to just get rid of me. They wanted to fire a shot across the bow of other journalists who might, that might cause trouble. So this is kind of really, you know, honestly, this is a lot more, this is a lot bigger than about Ted Rall. I, I'm, I'm just a symbol here. What this is really about is, is trying to chill any kind of negative coverage on the part of reporters who are working in a very beleaguered industry that's had huge budget cuts where over half of the staff of the LA Times is gone from budget cuts. And those who remain are terrified and they're going to toe the line. You know, if they come on, they get an, an LAPD story, you know, especially now they're going to, you know, they have to look at, at their husbands or their wives and ask themselves, you know, do I really want to be risk unemployment to yep. take on these like mean bastards? Well, and, you know, the other thing about this, too, just to bring this into the political context that, that, that we talk about here is that it's not only is it not just about you in terms of this individual case, but it's not just about journalists uh, specifically. It's about the way in which the police are now perceived on the social level, given the fact that we have all of these uh, we have this Black Lives Matter movement. We have all of this social uh, ferment around police brutality, around police murders, especially especially people of color. And it seems to me that the police are trying to send a message to anybody in the media that if you want to take a stand on some of these issues, you're going to pay the personal price. So don't do it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, look, it's a police state. It was bad before 9-11, uh, especially in, in minority communities, especially in the black community. And now, post 9-11, we're living in a highly militarized world. Yep. Now, in my case, you know, you're, it, it's kind of almost, I hate to say this, a cartoon version of what's going on, because it's the LAPD, the most heavily militarized, most violent, most institutionally corrupt uh, police department in the United States for a long time. These, these are the people who invented the SWAT team back in the 1970s. Uh, so we're talking about just absolute the worst of the worst. And they just don't know any better. I mean, you know, the, the, I think the thing I've got going for me is I'm white. So, you know, it's in that encounter, yep. I was less likely to get beaten or killed. Uh, and also, you know, me, I'm, I'm pretty prominent and, you know, and I know how to stand up for myself. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of, I've got some more support than probably Nick Goldberg or the LAPD counted upon. They probably thought freelance cartoonist, they'll take his licks. Goldberg probably thought there actually was a chance that I had lied. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I think he talked himself into it. I think, I think the cops came to him and said, this is what it is. And he believed them and he didn't occur to him that there was a narrative that differed from his 
from what he was told. He was gullible and stupid. And, um, and, and so here we are. He's painted himself and the L.A. Times into a corner. And they've got it. They're, they're really in trouble because what are they going to do? I mean, they can't if they apologize, which I would love. I want that apology. I want that retraction. I want my job back. That's really what I want. I mean, every week my cartoon would appear in there. It would be my vindication. It's all I want. I just want my life back. But if they do that, how do they do it? They have to blame the LAPD. They have to say, well, you know, we, they gave us this thing and it was doctored and, uh, you know, probably doctored. I can't say that 100%, but almost certainly. Um, and anyway, it certainly didn't say what the cop said it said. That's true. So the cops lied to us. And we know that the cop, Officer Wilder, who arrested me, lied because he said that none of this happened. And so he lied. He should be fired. He should be out. Like yep. I said in my complaint back in 2001, and I know this is going to sound really trite, but I had the truth on my side. I knew that. And, uh, and, and now, you know, I can prove it. And I might not have been able to prove it if they'd done a decent erasing job but, or splicing job, but they didn't. But I can prove it. And thanks to that woman who probably thought she was wasting her time witnessing for me and arguing on my behalf and all the other ones who were doing the same thing 14 years ago, their voices are being heard through time and are speaking out against injustice all these years later. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's kind of amazing. Absolutely. You know, one of the other things that I wanted to bring up and, you know, and so I've been following this story. I follow you on social media. I've been, you know, I've been reading all about this. And one of the things that I find so fascinating, and just as you said, is, you know, there's a level of stupidity on the part of, you know, some of the management, the editorial, the editor, the editors at the LA Times and whatever. And it reminds me of some of the other moments of sheer stupidity and or irresponsibility and or or malfeasance on the part of mainstream media, such as oh, I don't know, the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, pretty much everything during the you know the from the 9/11 period, say till 2007 or something like that. It reminds me of all of the corruption of what we talk about with the quote unquote the corporate media. It's like your scenario is in many ways a microcosm of everything that's wrong with the major media. It's true. It is true. And, you know, I mean, I was in, you know, I, I can't say I was in the belly of the beast. I have always worked freelance. I've always wanted to work inside one of these institutions. I've never been on staff at any of them. Um, and I, I guess I could, you know, but I, I guess I was uh, delivering a product that was um, drawing enough eyeballs that, um, you know, people, look, people, people buy my stuff. When they read my cartoons and they read my stuff, they like it. So, uh, you know, some editors can't really resist. And I got to be honest. I mean, the other editors at the LA Times, um, you know, Susan Brenneman, Cherry G, uh, who've been supporting me all these years, Susan Sue Horton, not there anymore, but she brought me on. She's at Reuters now. Um, you know, these are people who are supportive. Um, you know, when I was going to Afghanistan in 2011 to do war correspondency in part for the LA Times, uh, they, you know, they cried. <laughs> you know, they, I mean, if... I, this has to be, you know, it's not everyone is like that there. It's it's just that you've got people who are, even Nick Goldberg, I think he probably was just scared for his job and dumb and dumb, uh, you know, because if he'd been smart when he was told to do this, he should have just said, uh, no, I won't. You find someone else. But, right. uh, you know, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's just a cluster, you know, F. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, 
I don't know if we can curse. You can say a clusterfuck. You can say clusterfuck. It's a clusterfuck. It's a clusterfuck. It is. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's, I mean, I almost feel sorry for them. Almost. Because they've really, they're in a, you know, I mean, I I never like to see people in a no-win situation. And they could fix it, but they would have to throw the LAPD under the bus. And I don't see how they're going to do that. Right. Well, and as I said, you know, part of this is, look, the, I, I understand on the one hand, you want to, you can be sort of sympathetic or understanding to their position. On the other hand, this is part of, this is part of the, part of the territory. This is part of the nature of working in media about the fact that you're going to have situations, politically sticky situations that are going to come under scrutiny and you got to have, uh, you know, a, a sharp mind and you got to have a moral compass and you got to have a some sense of ethics uh otherwise you're just going to be well exactly what some of these people have exposed themselves to be little more than corporate lackeys the other thing too and you know just to since since we're speaking here on an alternative independent media outlet this is again a reminder of the importance of what truly independent media is and what truly independent media does because of course no no lapd organization or nypd organization or anybody like that is ever going to be able to tell Counterpunch or any other uh, truly independent uh, outlet what they can print, what they should say, who they should fire. And again, this reminds us of the way in which the propaganda, you know, media matrix works in the United States. It's just that's what we mean when we say the corporate media. Yeah, that's right. It is. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a really extreme example, but you do see these same similar um, relationships really across, you know, the, the, the all of the major uh, you know, corporate owned. And um, I mean, basically the things I look for when I look for independence, I look for small, scrappy, certainly privately owned, you know, uh, public, public stocks, corporations, amalgamations. Uh, those things are just all very, very bad for media. They shouldn't even be permitted. Um, and uh, they should be illegal. I mean, because you're not getting, you're not getting news out of that. And honestly, that's, you know, you claiming that you're delivering news and analysis uh, what about truth and advertising? You're just delivering spin and propaganda. Yeah, exactly right. Um, before we be, before we have to end our conversation, I do want to talk a little bit about the other important news on the Ted Roll front, and that is a new book that's coming out. So uh, you have a book, I guess it's scheduled for, well, as we're speaking now, for about uh, release about two weeks from now. So tell us about the book. Uh, what is it about? What should What should people get excited about? And uh, what do you want them to know? Well, this is the biography of Edward Snowden, the NSA whistleblower, and it's uh, done. It's the only one that's out, um, and uh, there's some new information in there. That um, so, if you've been following the story, uh, you'll you'll find out some of the things that you might be wondering about are, are cleared up. Uh, the book comes out August 25th, and you can pre-order on Amazon. And if you pre-order now, you'll help make it a bestseller uh, because they kind of look at what at the pre-orders uh, to determine that the first week, and that can really give the book a, a boost. Um, it's a it's a small book, 240 pages, um, and it's in form. It's pretty detailed, though. And essentially, if you're not if you're not too familiar with exactly what the NSA was up to and exactly what Edward Snowden revealed, this will give you in in you know, a couple of hours, you'll be able to read through and come away with a really strong understanding of each of these NSA programs and what they do and how they do it and exactly how really we have established, uh, well, not we, but they have established an Orwellian surveillance state mm-hmm. that, that literally intercepts every digital communication in the world and, uh, and stores it 
and it's and can process it and crunch it six ways till Sunday using big data algorithms. Uh, it, it's it's truly frightening. People are afraid of, of Facebook, you know, and Twitter, uh, and that, those are very legitimate concerns. But you know, no corporation, as evil as they are, have ever put people on trains and sent them to death camps. That's a government thing. So we need to be really, really concerned about uh, putting that kind of power and information in the hands of the government. Um, and this, that's explained. And it also uh, sort of gets into the what what was you know the, the, the existential decision that, that Edward Snowden had to face. He was torn between conflicting oaths and conflicting duties. I mean, he had made a promise to his employers, uh, the NSA and CIA contractors that he worked for, not to ever divulge any, any classified information. And, you know, when you make a promise, you sign a contract, that's serious, and you should take it seriously. I do. Um, but on the other and a lot of people criticize him for that, and it's a valid, it's a valid criticism, I think. But then uh, there was what Edward believed, and I agree, to have been his greater duty, which was to try to, um, to he had taken an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States and to, uh, and, and the people of the United States. And what the government was doing was doing the opposite of that. So he, in his judgment, assessed, I think, pretty cold-bloodedly that he needed to gather this information and release it to the public. And that's what he did at great personal risk. I think he's an incredibly admirable person, a, a true hero for our times. And uh, and so this tells that story. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, uh, you know, very, I think it's a nice, it's a nice design. I think it turned out well. It's all color. Um, and uh, I, I hope people give it a shot. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. I mean, I've obviously I followed the Snowden thing very closely, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the book. I'm looking forward to learning more from it. And I'm looking forward, just to be honest with you, to find out how this whole thing with you in the LA Times turns out, because this is, this is turning into a, a, a drama of somewhat epic proportions, I think. Yeah, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Um, there appears to be, it seems like it's just about to explode based on some of the press queries that I've gotten. Um, could be tomorrow, as early as tomorrow, or maybe another day or two. But uh, it's, you know, it's a slow building thing. I, I'm shocked about how slow but well, it's slow. Well, let's put it this way. At least, at the very least, it's going to help sell some books. It'll help sell some books, probably. <laughs> but, but honestly, I mean, in all seriousness, um, you know, I was telling someone recently, and I really do mean this, uh, you know what, what really matters, what I would really like to see, is some serious reform of the LAPD. And, you know, if, if one black guy doesn't get shot as a result of this, uh, and, and I have to spend years fighting these guys, that's worth it for me, really. Definitely. Well, um, Ted Rawl, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Counterpunch Radio has been excellent speaking with you. Um, again, listeners, you should be following Ted's work. I mean, he is... Look, how many how many really great political cartoonists are out there? How many really great um, authors do you know that are really fighting the good fight? So Ted's one of them. So pick up the book. It's uh, pre-order it, Snowden, uh, on Amazon, or I believe you can get it through uh, Ted's website, Rawl.com. You can make your pre-orders there. His work is at anewdomain.net. Ted Rawl, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. 
It was a real pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you. And listeners, stick with us after the break. I'm going to have Robert Hunsiker on the program to discuss climate change, the environment, the polar caps, and all the serious trouble that this planet is in. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Um, So shifting gears quite dramatically, in fact, to talk about a whole host of other issues that are definitely not related to what we were just talking about before the break, but ever so important. And I have to confess right off the bat, um, one of my weaknesses in putting Counterpunch Radio together is that I've gone almost, well, now 15 episodes or into the 15th episode without focusing on truly, uh, you know, specifically focusing on environmental issues. And that's a failing on my part. And hopefully I can rectify that with my next guest, Robert Hunsiker. He is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. You can find his work all over the website. Uh, He is an author. You can Follow him uh, on Twitter at Robert underscore Hunziker dot com. Excuse me. Let me try that again. At Robert underscore Hunziker. Thank you. I am familiar with Twitter, ladies and gentlemen. So with all of that being said, I want to turn to Robert. I want to talk about all of these issues. Robert, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you, Eric. It's really my pleasure. Um, and uh, this is a big subject matter. In fact, uh, you know, climate change, the interesting thing about it is that it's found everywhere nobody goes. Um, in other words, it's found at the top of the world, at the bottom of the world. It's found in the mountains, in the valleys, oceans, tundra, ice shelves, Siberia. And who travels there when you really stop to think about it? So the heart or the heartbeat, if you will, of climate change is where we don't see it happening. And that's one of the political issues, one of the, part of the political issue that people don't really get it as much as they should. But who does travel there? There are two different groups of people that travel to all of those remote regions. One is scientists. The second group that travels there, oil explorationists. 
you think about it, how about the irony with that, Eric? Yeah, no, exactly uh, right. And and well, I mean, the inescapable, you know, tremendously uh, large elephant in the room of all of that is, of course, capitalism, right? Because it is the drive for profit. It is capitalism in general that is the driving force behind all of these issues, whether you're talking about climate change generally, whether you're talking about depletion and destruction of ecosystems or emission of uh, radiation or what have you. In many ways, it is the economic system, this globally dominant economic system that is driving this. Yeah, that's true. And actually, uh, since you mentioned capitalism, what we've really got is the neoliberal form of capitalism right. now, which uh, is really um, uh, uh, very harsh on the climate. It's profits, uh, privatize, take profits, and no other prisoners, just profits, and that's it. And so what we really need to do down the line uh, is we need to somehow convince the world to convert to eco-economics, uh, where economics work in harmony with nature. But we'll come back around to that. Maybe. Oh, absolutely. And that's a plug, a little bit of a plug there for Kim Stanley Robinson. And if anyone hasn't read the Mars Trilogy, my God, you absolutely should. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that yet either. Um, I want to start off, Robert, if I could, by talking about something very general, um, and that is the atmosphere. Because I think that there is, it's sort of this thing that isn't, talked about very often, but I want you to explain for listeners why um, we should be thinking about the atmosphere, the composition of the atmosphere, and, and atmospheric related issues in order to frame our understanding of climate change and all of the other environmental issues we should be focusing on. Okay, well, um, if you look at the, uh, the way the components of the atmosphere, uh, 99% of the atmosphere consists of oxygen, nitrogen, and argon. Now, what's interesting about that is that those three components are entirely transparent to incoming solar radiation as well as transparent to outgoing infrared radiation. So they have no impact whatsoever on global warming. So 99% of our atmosphere has nothing whatsoever to do with global warming, whereas the other 1% now, this is our trace gases, the other 1% of our entire atmosphere, and that's carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, water vapor. These trace elements absorb infrared radiation, the radiant heat, and that's where you get the warming effect. Uh, and uh, this, is, of course, is what uh, James Hansen talked about in 1988 when he spoke before Congress that he's detected greenhouse gases for the first time. That's when the world woke up to the issue. But think about that for a moment. It's just a little thin line, less than 1% of our atmosphere, determines whether the planet Earth is inhabitable or not, whether we have zero-degree temperature or 60-degree temperature. So now if you then look at just a real quick historical take, on where we are in terms of those key trace gases. For example, the most powerful of all the trace gases by far is carbon dioxide, CO2. And I think everybody's familiar with that term. Over the last 20,000 years, the, the CO2 in our atmosphere has run anywhere from 180 to 280 parts per million, pretty consistently for 20,000 years. In fact, if you go back to 900 AD, uh, the Middle Ages, and bring it forward, it was stable at about 275. And then as soon as you got to pre-industrial, about 200 years ago, 
we started moving up. We're now at 400. So 350 is considered uh, already uh, there are red flashing lights going off when you're at 350 parts per million. We're at 400. Then if you look at the next most important trace gas, which is methane, pre-industrial, we were at 720 parts per billion. Today, we're very close to 2,000. Look how much that one's gone up. So that's the problem behind our global warming because those trace gases are, are um, reflecting, in fact, back down to Earth, what normally is an albedo effect. When the sun's radiation hits the planet, about 50% of it is, has an albedo effect where it shoots back into outer space. But that 50% is now a lot of it's being stopped. Now, we have a budget in our planet, a carbon budget, and I think it's important for people to understand this. A thousand gigatons of carbon warms the earth by 2C. And as we all know by now, 2C is kind of that land, uh, line in the sand that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and uh, the, the, the mainstream scientists have said, we don't want to go above that because really nasty things will happen. And by the way, as we move along further in the discussion here, there are some scientists who think two things. One, we've already baked in 2C. And secondly, you don't even know to, need to go to 2C because, frankly, we've already got some negative things happen. But let's just stay with this for a moment and, and go with the consensus. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've used up half of that budget. So we've used up 500 gigatons so far. So that's a, it took us about 200 years. If nothing changes going forward from today, Eric, we'll use the other half of that carbon budget in the next 25 years. Okay? So it took us about 200 years to increase the worldwide temperature by 0.85 Celsius. It'll only take us another 25 years to go up to about 2, two Celsius or 2C. The problem we've got is since 1950, these trace gases or these emissions are growing exponentially. Now, let me give you an example here of what happens if we do go up to 2C. Uh, David Attenborough, uh, the British um, naturalist, uh, who's in his mid-90s now, uh, did a film some years ago, Are We Changing Planet Earth? And I thought he gave two fantastic examples of what can happen going forward if we either cool too much or if we warm up too much. Here's what he said. 160,000 years ago, temperatures were 4C cooler than they are today. At that time, New York City would have been in an ice pack one and a quarter miles thick. That's 4C cooler than today. 160,000 years ago, New York was is, is in an ice pack. 130,000 years ago, temperatures were 2C warmer than they are today, headed in the direction we are right now. New York City would have been in 16 feet of water. So that's what we're potentially, the type of thing we're potentially facing. But this climate issue, I think everybody needs to keep a couple things in mind on this. One is... It's new science. It was only in 1988 that James Hansen testified before Congress and said, we've detected a greenhouse effect, a greenhouse warming effect in our climate. And nowadays, we've got new scientific evidence coming out 
uh, almost by the by the month sometimes or by every year because scientists are focusing so much attention. It's a new field in a way. Yeah, so we're yeah. still learning about it all the time. And, you know, there's so many um, political dimensions to it. And I want to I want to just touch on that a little bit because you mentioned the phrase carbon budget and you, you you meant it in the context of the budget for planet Earth. But there's also a different quote unquote carbon budget and that has to do with the relations between developed nations, developing nations and, uh, you know, the global south generally. And this is one of the really sticky political conflicts that has emerged out of the climate change debate that developing countries, especially powerful economically powerful and important ones such as China and India especially, they have pushed back over the course of a number of years against uh, the United States and Western Europe generally saying, wait a second, you all got to develop your economies, you got to become first world nations, now you're going to impose upon us restrictions on our economic growth. How is that possibly fair? So I want to talk about uh, climate change and carbon budgets in the context of economic dictating economic development terms to the global south. How do you read that issue? Well, I think the developing countries are, are right on. I mean, they, they, they've nailed it. That's exactly the problem. Um, and, you know, we've had these conference, they call them COP, COP, Conference of the Parties. I think they've had 20 meetings now over the last couple of decades. And I've written in some of my work that uh, it's all been fruitless, uh, um, and, and they've never gotten anywhere. And, of course, one of the big dividing lines is exactly what you just outlined, and that is the developing countries are saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not the ones that put all of this CO2 in the atmosphere that stays there for hundreds of thousands of years. You developing countries did. You should take the, the brunt of, of, of moving ahead on this. Now, in that regard, um, uh, we should talk a little bit, Eric, about what Obama's done outside of our Congress with both China and also with India because um, he met with uh, Xi Jinping in China and they formed an agreement. And that agreement stated that China said, well, post-2030, we will keep our emissions constant. Let me tell you how important that is. Keep in mind that uh, budget we talked about a little while ago that our planet can handle a 1,000 um, gigatons of carbon before uh, we go to in, 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 before it really goes to 2C, right? Um, if China uh, does uh, hold up to that agreement with Obama, and this, of course, is going to come up in Paris uh, here this coming November, December, when uh, uh, the 190 nations meet, um, they will emit an additional 86 gigatons. Uh, of carbon between the year 2030 and 2060, okay? If China continues to roll ahead today, and if they did not have this agreement with Obama, they would emit an additional 790 gigatons. Think of that. 86 gigatons versus 7. Well, they gobble up the entire planet planetary budget, don't they? So that's how important that type of agreement is. Uh, if, in fact, uh, everybody uh, sticks to their guns. 
I just want to interject one other point, though. It's something that I think a lot of people have missed, actually, recently. Uh, one of the major changes culturally and politically in China is more attention being paid to environmental issues just because of the extreme environmental degradation that the economic development, the rapid economic development of China has wrought on that country. And uh, many people miss the fact that the Chinese government stepped in and simply abolished a lot of their coal-fired plants. And they've actually moved quite dramatically away from coal in a very short period of time. Now, that kind of government intervention is something that in China, they can do quite literally overnight with a political decision. Whereas in the United States, in the so-called developed world, you don't actually see such rapid shifts. So I just wanted to interject that. It's one of the major differences between China's development and that in the West. You're absolutely correct. And they really, really... uh uh, taken hold on on that the way you just outlined it, and you must applaud that country for doing that. Isn't it interesting what uh, state-run quasi-totalitarian governments can do? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In a, in a way, well, I mean, when they uh, deem when they deem that they have a national emergency with it, all of a sudden, boom! A political decision is made: no more coal plants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right, and and, and so that uh, is kind of a, a bit of a savior for us. Um, but, um, Eric, I think, um, the, the seriousness of what's happening with the climate, there's some things that may be almost baked in the cake here that are going to be extremely difficult to deal with. And, uh, when I say that I'm really referencing the elephant in the room and that's the Arctic. Yes. And if you want to talk about that for a minute or two, maybe we should do that. Oh, I think probably more than a minute or two. Let's let's do that because I think that um, anybody who understands the not only the impact that the that the Arctic has on our climate today, but the potential impact that a significant change in sea ice and in in the polar caps in general. I mean, that would have impacts uh, really that are almost um, unimaginable. So let's talk a little bit about that and some of your recent work on that issue. So tell us about uh, uh, sea ice, the changes in that, and some of the broader issues that are specific to the Arctic? Well, all right. The Arctic can literally put us on our ear here. Uh, In fact, the entire planet, it could happen. Um, It's an extraordinarily dangerous situation right now. And the problem is if we lose all of the sea ice in the Arctic, you... you, (laughs) a lot of really nasty things are going to happen. For one thing, two major things are happening here. One is that the warming of the Arctic and it's the temperature in the Arctic is increasing by one C per decade. That's the current rate. Think of that. One, so it's increasing two to three to four times faster than the temperature of the whole planet. One of the things that throws people off when they hear about the uh, temperature of the planet has increased by 0.85, that's the average of the entire planet. But what you've got to look at is you have to look at latitudinal changes. Uh, And this is what I learned from Paul Beckwith, uh, who's with the University of Ottawa. He's a paleoclimatologist. And when you then look at latitudinal changes, and with the Arctic increasing two to three times faster than anywhere else, first let's look at the evidence that it's really heating up big time in the Arctic. In 1980... If you look at the Arctic sea ice volume, the total mass of the ice, it was about 17,000, 18,000 cubic kilometers. Now, this is in September, and that's the minimal point for the ice every year. In 2014, 
so what's that, 34 years later? Uh, about 7,000 cubic kilometers. So that mass of ice lost 10,000 cubic kilometers, about 60% of its mass, from 1980 to 2014. Then the ice thickness of the central Arctic Ocean has declined from, on average, 12 feet to 3 to 4 feet over that same period of time. Now, the big risk with the Arctic is that it becomes ice-free in that September year at its minimal because it'll really feed on itself. You, we're already losing what they call multi-year ice, and that's really the 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 structure, the, the 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 foundation of the ice, if you will. So the ice that returns every winter now is uh, ice extent, and it's quite thin, breaks up quite easily. The U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, Department of Ocean Oceanography, which is one of the leading ones in the world expects an ice-free Arctic in the year 2016, give or take three years. Now, what will happen is that um, not only uh, are we going to be affecting the jet streams and our weather patterns, because the jet streams, instead of circling the Earth in a tight formation, they have big loops and they get lazy when you have the warming of the Arctic, and that causes these long-duration droughts. That causes the polar vortex, all of these strange weather patterns that we've been experiencing. So we're going to throw the weather patterns off more than ever. But the biggest concern is the methane, because you have got thousands of gigatons of methane stored for millennia under that ice in calthrates and uh, in, in, in permafrost. And as that starts to melt, and the, and, and, and the uh, methane is released, that feeds on itself, and you'll get runaway global warming. Right. Um, now, just a quick, just a quick, um, I guess, interjection slash question. This is this is what they mean when they talk about the, the the climate change feedback loop, right? That essentially, once you get to that point where you've unlocked that methane, that methane then gets released, and then it itself it it traps more heat, causing additional global warming, therefore releasing more methane. So you have this feeding on itself that you're talking about, right? That's correct. That is correct. Yeah, that's what happens. In fact, the Great Dine, uh, the, the Permian extinction 250 million years ago, uh, you had runaway global warming, 90% extinction of all life on the planet, and that was triggered by a sudden release of methane. Uh, and, of course, what happens is when you lose the ice, you know, the albedo effect of ice is very powerful. So about 80% of the solar radiation that hits the Arctic when you have ice and snow is reflected back into outer space. Well, as that melts off, then the dark background of the ocean absorbs more and more heat. Well, you absorb more and more heat, then you release more and more methane. Right. The more methane you get, the more heat you entrap. <laughs> it's like an oven, and it feeds on itself. And that's the big, big elephant in the room. That's the huge concern. Uh, now, there's some scientists, I call them pioneer scientists, uh, because they're really the ones that have their boots on the ground and go out and, 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 and see what's going on. People like Natalia Sekova, uh, who's Russian, who's really probably the leading uh, scientist in the world. Uh, she's in charge of the Russia-U.S. methane study group out of the University of Alaska. And she's been traveling uh, up into the East Siberian shelf area for a couple of decades. 
she's made the statement that we could get a 50 gigaton outburst of methane at any time because the, the Arctic is melting so quickly. That would cripple civilization. Currently, there are five gigatons okay, of a CH4 or methane in the atmosphere. She's saying we could get a 50 gigaton outburst. And if you talk to certain scientists like Guy McPherson, uh, who's considered a, a bit of a radical because he thinks the end of the world's coming, by the way, and there's nothing we can do about it, uh, he would say, yeah, that's going to happen. Well, the Arctic shelf contains thousands of gigatons of uh, methane. Um, there's another Russian scientist who only recently uh, came out and said, we've got an ecological landslide on our hands. It's irreversible. And he studies the fine bogs in Siberia. And his name's Sergei Kirpatin. So what scientists are finding is when they go out into the field, three years ago, they might have gone into the field in Siberia and they found a little one square foot or one foot diameter uh, uh, burst of methane coming out. And they went back three years later and it was a half mile wide. Yep. On these trips into the Arctic, what the scientists are finding is they're finding huge plumes, some, in some cases a mile wide. It looks like a uh, 7-Up bubbling up. You know what I mean? How it bubbles up in the ocean uh, that are a mile wide. So we can't lose the Arctic. If we lose the Arctic, we're going to set ourselves up for runaway global warming. And we're also going to, uh, our weather patterns are going to get horribly messy. And the other thing that I wanted to add to that, just as if as if we needed to hammer this uh, issue home a little deeper. Um, I just in in preparing to talk to you, Robert, I was I was reading up on some of the developments just this week and this new study, this new report in the peer reviewed journal Energy Science and Engineering came out just a couple of days ago. We're chatting here in the first week of August, and um, I guess the 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 lead researcher's name. Ugh, Ironically, I suppose, is Touche Howard, and uh, his his group found that actually emissions of methane have been vastly underreported and underestimated, specifically because of some of the technology that's been used to uh, measure it uh, in regards to uh, natural gas exploration and natural gas exploitation. And so, if that's true, and if we were to accept that, then actually the methane release just from the fossil fuels alone is already massively higher than we even thought. Yeah, well, that points to um, the fact that we've got to get off fossil fuels. We really do. It's a killer, absolutely a killer. And, um, uh, of course, most uh, climate activists are very much aware of uh, the pushback on the other side, uh, the climate denial group. Uh, and I think most climate deniers are but most climate activists are very much aware of the fact that about 10 years ago um, that uh, some fossil fuel interest and uh, some other extreme right-wing parties put together a $100 million fund to fight uh, the climate change uh, uh, issue. Mm -hmm. And they set up phony websites like Climate Depot run by a guy named Murano, uh, who, by the way... Um, uh, was formerly chief of staff for Inoff, the senator from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, they pay scientists uh, to take the other side. In fact, it was within the last year that a, 
a well-known scientist uh, associated with Harvard, uh, was found taking uh, payoffs from the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, Dr. Moon or something something along those lines, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody intercepted some private communications that they had. Uh, now, that $100 million that they've uh, put out to uh, uh, confuse the public, and basically that was their whole, whole modus operandi, they wanted to create doubt that maybe it's really not true. Uh, maybe climate change isn't caused by uh, humans. Maybe it's just solar or whatever else, all these things they keep coming out with. And they've succeeded in a lot of ways. They've created a lot of doubt. doubt. If you look at some of the Pew polls of how people uh, in this country view the climate change issue, uh, and if you have 20 issues you're looking at, this one normally comes out in the bottom quadrant somewhere. So, well, let me let me let me point this out too, um, and I think that this is important. There are some people who I have who I have come across uh, who are very very bright, highly intelligent, scientists, even some of them scientists, whether physicists or astronomers or what what have you, who are not believers in climate change who are, uh, you know, quote unquote, I don't like to use the term denialist because there's a weird stigma with that word, but, you know, who are skeptical of some of the more dire predictions about climate change and who, you know, for somebody like me who doesn't have a background in science, my, you know, my focus is more on political issues. You know, it's hard for me to argue against somebody with a background in physics who's telling me, well, the climate change stuff is not really, it's not real or it's not such a big deal or whatever. So it's not only doubt because of some of these, you know, paid, bought and paid for think tanks, but there are some people I think who genuinely believe it and who can make a relatively reasonable argument that's difficult to back up, you know, or or rather I should say it's difficult to debate with them. You know what I mean? No, no, it's not. Here's what you say, Eric. Uh, Okay, then please explain the following. How is it that the Arctic has lost 60% of its mass over the last 30 years? Mm -hmm. How is it? that the, uh, according to the University of Zurich, uh, where they uh, measure, um, they have a, a study group that measures our glaciers around the world, right? How is it that the, Alp- the Alps have lost 30 feet of mass the last 10 years? That's a three-story building the last 10 years. Well, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they play devil's advocate? Well, let me just play de- their part for a second. Devil's advocate here. Sure. They would. They would say, "Well, if you look at the if you look at the long term archaeological record, we have seen tremendously varying periods of warming where those glaciers have receded, and periods of cooling. We had ice ages, little ice ages, and everything in between. So, how do you know it's not just a natural phenomenon? Uh, I'll tell you how we know because it's happening so rapidly. What they're forgetting is speed. And what's happening now is that everything's happening uh, on, uh, on turbocharged. Um, in fact, there was a recent revelation out of Rutgers by two scientists uh, 55 million years ago. Temperatures increased by 5C in 13 years, 5 degrees centigrade in 13 years. That would throw us into a tizzy in this world if that happened, wouldn't it? Now, uh, previously, all science thought that it took 10,000 years to do that until two years ago. So the problem we've got is that these issues are turbocharged right now. They're happening so much faster. The acidification in the ocean is happening at least 10 times faster than it has in the last 300 million years. I mentioned that in my last article that uh, I I, I gave to Counterpunch. 
Um, so it, it's not like the climate doesn't change because one of the uh, 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 arguments or the comebacks by the Republicans when they ask them, the, the right-wingers, is they say, well, what are you going to do about the climate? And they say, well, it always changes. And that's what you're saying right now. But what they forget is the speed. Yeah, We're on a turbocharged climate. <laughs> we don't know of a period of time. We don't know of a period of time ever when the Arctic has lost 60% of its mass in 30 years. Yeah. When the Andes have lost 50% and they take pictures of these things, they know of their glaciers. The World Bank came out with an alarm that they're worried about uh, hydropower, they're worried about uh, irrigation for crops and drinking water for a large segment of South America because they've lost 50% of their glaciers over the last 30 years. Yeah, it's the thing. If that's not global warming. What is? Yeah, well, the, that's exactly right, and that's the that's to to me at least. You know, without getting into all of the technical stuff about all of the science and the physics and all of the rest of that, you know, I can see with my own eyes f photographs from the 1950s and photographs from today, or even the 1970s or the 1980s versus today. And I mean, you can just see it plain as day. Now, one other one other uh, point to just to, I want to play devil's advocate so that I can get you to sort of um, draw out the. The, the the silliness of this argument, if you could, one of the other arguments that you come across from climate skeptics or whatever is that, well, most of these dire apocalyptic uh, uh, predictions are based on mathematical models, and these models have been proven to be faulty numerous times. So how can we trust any of these predictions if it's based on this uh, very uh, dodgy modeling? All models are subject to change, and all models are, are subject to uh, having uh, uh, variation. Every model ever made for anything in science, number one. But beyond that, um, uh, in my own particular case, uh, I really pay a lot of attention to this, the, what I call the pioneer scientists with boots on the ground who go out and see what's happening. And uh, by the way, the models are way off on the Arctic because the models show the Arctic becomes ice-free. Um, uh, I believe it's 20, almost 2100, almost toward the end of this, this century, way out there. Well, if you look at what's really happened, uh, the graph's fallen way away from the model. If you talk to someone like Peter Wattams, um, so uh, the models have been inaccurate by not predicting what's really happening by a long shot. It's much faster, much worse than the models say. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know how else to handle that other than look what's really happening. Well, I think that's I think that's part of the that's that's the point because one of the things that they, you know, I find interesting the climate skeptics, they they don't want to talk about, you know, this pesky thing that we like to call science um, because they'll say, well, I don't need a climatologist to tell me this or I don't need a scientist to tell me that. But in science, there is observation and there is testing hypotheses. And I think that based on what we're seeing and able to observe with our own eyes, that is to say, the scientists who are out there doing the observation, the situation is dire. Well, absolutely dire, extremely so. And one of the problems with science, by the way, is scientists, uh, by, by definition, are conservative. They're always conservative because, generally speaking, they want to be as close to 100% certain as they are yeah. before they'll write, extend a thesis and write a paper and submit it and so forth. That, that's just their nature. 
The other thing with scientists, and this is uh, interesting, is that they never want to be labeled an extremist because if you're a scientist and you're labeled an extremist, uh, you have you could get blackballed in the whole industry. So they have to be very careful. They're walking on eggshells. This is one of the big criticisms, by the way, uh, of the IPCC uh, is uh, the scientists there have a tendency to be way too conservative in their projections. And the the scientists who are willing to go out on the uh, uh, the cliff's edge, like uh, Peter Wadhams, uh, who's really one of the most respected in the entire planet, um, you know, they 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 have uh, fairly negative things to say about the IPCC. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, one of the Kerry uh, um, Manuel at MIT, who uh, is uh, one of the leading atmospheric scientists in the world, uh, I think he left the IPCC. Uh, but what's interesting about him is he's a conservative Republican. His name's Kerry Emanuel. And um, in talks I've heard him give, he's, what he says is that the Earth's climate period is not stable. And secondly, anthropogenic climate change is not controversial among climate scientists at all in private. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so if you, I think that if you could take a lot of these scientists who are so careful with their words and sit down with them privately, you'd hear an altogether different story. Because the reality is, um, the, the the ecosystem is under enormous stress, and uh, in the oceans, and um, uh, it's 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 again, uh, it's where nobody goes. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, we're running out of time, and I, I want to jam in, if I could, a couple of other issues, just because I think they're so important. You know, one of the major issues, uh, environmental issues, that I've I've actually followed closely, just because it's my, uh, in some ways in my wheelhouse, uh, it is the situation with Fukushima. And um, since 2011, this, this unfolding drama has been... Well, quite frankly, almost completely erased from the narrative. Uh, the news really won't cover it. Mainstream media, for the most part, won't cover it here and there. They might tuck it away, you know, as a as an uncontroversial story that nobody pays attention to. But I think that it is incredibly important, not only because of the radiation itself and what it, and the implications of the radiation, but what it's doing to the ocean, to the Pacific Ocean, the the sort of trickle down effect that, that might have on oceanic. Uh, uh, ecosystems on the fish on um, you know mammals and so forth so let's talk a little bit about that um, not only just the fact that this is a clear and blatant cover-up by many governments internationally um, but also the environmental impact of what Fukushima has done and what it continues to do literally as we speak one of the problems with this Eric is that it's too early for science to really get a good handle on it uh, Quite frankly, I'm being honest with you. Uh, not only that, but you also have a nationwide blackout in China, in, in Japan uh, a, a year and a half ago. Uh, the government passed a, a new secrecy law, and what that law states is carte blanche. Um, if anybody reveals any state secrets, and state secrets that the, the, the definition of it's wide open, it's de- it's determined based upon what a politician says is a state secret. Hmm. And you can go to jail for five to ten years. 
and what's that what that has done and by the way it's it, it violates their own constitution um and uh what it's done is it's put a lid on any information that comes out of out of japan it's certainly put a lid on well you know the major uh, news network nhk is is really run the way the same way fox news is here by the way with kind of the same political leaning that's the major news source in, in Japan to begin with. Uh, and, of course, Abe, the uh, prime minister, is as extreme right as anybody in this country as well. And they're really running a mini totalitarian state there. Japan's a vassal of the United States. It has been since World War II. Absolutely. We dictate a lot of their policy. Yep. Um, and uh, how else are you going to keep uh, fifty to 100,000 soldiers in someone's backyard all the time ready to take on all of Southeast Asia? So, um, but having said that, uh, there are bits and pieces of information that come out and, um, uh, a, uh, the, it's not at all under control. Uh, that's a, that's a major nuke meltdown. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a, a major one. And they won't even, they may never be able to control it. Um, no one even knows where the core is at this point in time. They can't get close enough. They can't put people in there. They'll, they'll fry them. And they've tried to put these little robots in. And guess what happens to the robots? They get fried, too, yeah. when they put them into the, into the uh, containers. Um, so they've, they've just recently gone public saying that, oh, by the way, yep, it's leaking. And uh, no, we can't control it. I mean, that's now public knowledge. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and I think that the, uh, the damage that's going to come from this is going to be quite severe. Yeah. Uh, you know, and maybe more so than what we had with um, um, Chernobyl. Uh, and, you know, to this day, um, I wrote an article a few weeks ago about this, and I mentioned Chernobyl and the long-lasting effect of it. And uh, there's a huge dispute out there about the number of people who died from radiation caused by Chernobyl. But some research papers were uh, obtained out of Russia that showed that they think it's a million people, and that could be true. However, if you want to break your heart, go to Belarus, which yeah. is, you know, right next door, and go to the, they have hidden in the back countryside uh, 300 homes uh, for children that have been stricken uh, by uh, the radiation. And these are children that are deformed. Some don't have torsos. Some don't have legs. Uh, some of them are mentally retarded, and they just put their fingers in their eyes, and they're, and, and it's it just horrible. And there's an um, environmental writer out of The Guardian who actually traveled there and went to these homes and saw these kids and went to villages and talked to the people. And um, they call it the Chernobyl necklace there. Uh, everybody has thyroid cancer in, in some villages. Uh, people have died um, uh, from all kinds of strange cancer problems. So that's also been hidden, hasn't it? Yeah. And the other thing, the other thing that worries me, you know, I know you're in, you're in uh, Southern California. That's where my family is. That's where I come from originally. And it just, it strikes me as odd that um, nobody would really want to talk about the fact that, you know, every time you go to the store and you buy, you know, Alaskan salmon, or you go to the sushi bar with your friends or whatever, that there is a chance and we don't know exactly how, how great the chance is, but there's a chance that every Everything that you're eating is contaminated, and we don't actually know what the long-term implications of that are. And that that mystery around that, I, me personally, that's terrifying. Well, yeah, and you know, um, Eric, this last article I had in uh, 
Counterpunch, the title of it's Perfectly Nasty Ocean Storm. And that was all about the mass mortality events that are taking place. Uh, ABC News about a year ago had a special where they talked about the dead animals were being found yep. worldwide. Uh, uh, fish, uh, a lot of marine animals, it, it, massive amounts. And what's happened now, subsequent to that, is the first ever quantitative analysis was done uh, and submitted to the National Academy of Sciences. They've confirmed that there is a shift in magnitude of deaths. In other words, um, it's not like throughout the history we haven't had massive mortality events occur on the planet we have. But what's happened now is the magnitude and the frequency is way out of uh, out of out of uh, normal. It's 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 anomalous, and so maybe there is something going on here. Serious ecological problems. That's the conclusion they've come up with with these wildlife die-offs. Yeah, and we, we not have only to... that. Yeah, not only that. Very new research has come up. I don't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead. The deep water research is now showing us that from two thousand feet to a mile deep. They're finding marine fish that have liver pathologies, tumors, blending of their sex organs where the fish have both female and male. This was done by Oregon State University. It was just put out a couple months ago. So uh, are we changing the fundamentals of the ocean? Uh, according to the science that I've re I'm reading, this is the most radical change in 300 million years. And again, what, what they say is what I've been telling you throughout this interview, we're setting speed records when it comes to CO2 emission and when it comes to acidification of our oceans. As a matter of fact, uh, the man who um, coined the term ocean acidification uh, is Ken Caldera from the Carnegie Institute uh, decades ago. And according to him, uh, they're seeing that water that's so acidic off the coast of um, northern California that dissolves seashells. And one of the big problems with this acidity thing in the oceans, and it's caused by heat, it's caused by too much CO2, is we're losing the base of the food chain. If you look at pteropods, pteropods are like a little pea. They're, uh, they're uh, little um, uh, snails that swim free, and they multiply by the billions. They're eaten by everything from krill to, to, to whales. They're at the bottom, at the base of our food chain. The scientists have studied them in the South Ocean, and their shells are getting so thin that they can no longer mature, and they can't reproduce. Now, is that a problem? Yes, that's a problem. Jesus Christ, so that's that, a problem. Yeah. Is that ever a problem? So, see, that gets back to this whole thing about get rid of the fossil fuels. Right. If you're going to kill the base of the food chain, then you got to get rid of it, period. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, I want to. We're already significantly over the time that I that I had for us, but that's okay. I want to touch on one other point here, and it's very relevant to you where you are in in Los Angeles. It's very relevant to all of us, and that is the issue of water. And we're not just talking about the oceans, of course. We're talking about water in general because ultimately, uh, we're interested in the environment. We're interested in the earth and the biosphere and the ecosystem. But we're human beings, and it ultimately comes down to whether or not human beings can continue to survive on this planet. And my question to you has to do with water. And we know there's a water crisis in California. We know about this. It's no secret. It's all over the mainstream media. You have all kinds of people coming up with ideas about what could be done. My question to you is, is quite simple. Why is this issue 
uh, so important, specifically in the way in which it connects to this broader question of climate change. How is the water crisis related to climate change, broadly speaking? Well, broadly speaking, uh, you could talk about Sao Paulo, I think. Uh, it, it goes to the heart of it. Um, it, it, it it's, it's all connected. Uh, they're taking down the rainforest, as we know, in Brazil. And there are two rainforests in Brazil. One's the big Amazon, and then there's another one along the East Coast that most people don't know about. It's pretty much been decimated. Now, make a long story short. Um, they shut off the water. Sao Paulo, Brazil, is a city of 20 million people. It's the financial capital and the heartbeat for Brazil. Uh, they're shutting off the water supply there every day at 1 p.m. They turn it on the next morning. Uh, not even for all of the city, but for most of the city, sometime 9, 10 a.m., something like that. Um, the um, Amazon, the ocean, the rainforest, I mean, the oceans, control our climate so much, it's hard to believe. In fact, they call the Amazon um, a, a, a river. Uh, uh, it's an invisible river. And um, what they've done is they've altered the ecosystem so that they have an ecological collapse now in Brazil. But yet Brazil has 15% of the world's uh, uh, water. Isn't that uh, strange? Yeah. But um, your, your question, the way you put it, it's a little bit difficult for me to zero in on a specific answer other than to say that we're, we're experiencing a worldwide ecological collapse, and that does affect our water supply because when you have the Arctic throwing off the jet streams, you know when you're a kid you had a top, you would pump it and go really nice and spin until it slowed down, and then what would it do? It'd wobble, wouldn't it? Yeah. It'd have big loops in it. That's what we're doing to the jet streams by warming up the Arctic too much. And those jet streams are affecting the pressure system over the Pacific that is prohibiting normal Pacific storms to come into California. Okay? So what does have, what then happens is we don't get the rainfall we should, and we don't get the water up in the mountains on the coast with Nevada, or rather the border with Nevada, that, prov- that become our water town. Yep. So, yeah, that's how it all fits together. Yeah, of course. And uh, and we don't even have time to go into the effect that big agribusiness has on it, pumping out the groundwater, the inefficient use of uh, water and the way that they grow crops, of course. One other thing just it comes to my mind in, in closing here. You know, I not too long ago, I went back and reread a book that I had read years ago, uh, Late Victorian Holocausts by Mike Davis, you know, famous, famous uh, author of City of Quartz and other books. And, you know, it, 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 it tracks the historical progress of El Nino and La Nina events that are only very recently being understood. And it just came to my mind when you were talking about Brazil that, you know, a lot of these climate related phenomena we're only just starting to understand. And it seems to me the more we understand about them, the more uh, scary the entire situation becomes. At least just that's my that's my perspective on it. Well, uh, it's true, uh, it, it very much true, and, and there, I know of a lot of scientists who are just scared out of their pants, uh, like Guy McPherson, for example. We've talked about him already. And in fact, he's thrown his hands up into the air, and he said, it's a, it's a, we're goners. There's nothing we can do. Enjoy life today. You know, love, peace, that type of thing. But, uh, it, 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 yeah, um, we're, we're not very good stewards of our own planet. 
and and um, I could probably carry on for hours about oh, definitely uh, we we're in the midst of an <laughs> ecological collapse, and we don't even recognize it and really do something about it. We got to, you know the United States, uh, for better or worse, is really the leader of the world, and we got to get rid of this stupid political blockage we've got in this Republican and right wing Congress of ours. They're going to kill us. They're going to kill us. They're going to kill us. We've got to get rid of that. And whatever it takes. Now, now we're into politics. And is someone like Bernie Sanders the answer? There are a lot of leftists who don't think so, for example. But it sure as hell be a lot better than some Republican Yahoo running the country. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't. We definitely don't have time to get into Bernie. And oh man, I've done. I've done a number on Bernie already. And I know. I, there's a lot of people who don't like things I say about him. But anyway, um, I I want to yeah. have you. I want to have you back on because I want to touch on a lot of these other issues. But for now, we're out of time. Again, you've been listening to Robert Hunsiker. You should. I mean, obviously, you heard it here. He's 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 brilliant. He's got tons of information, tons of analysis. Follow him on Twitter at Robert underscore. Hunziker, that's H-U-N-Z-I-K-E-R. Follow his work on Counterpunch as well. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Eric. It was really great. Really, really liked it. My, my, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure having you on. Hope you'll come back. Listeners, as always, thanks again for listening. Go to iTunes, give us those positive iTunes reviews, help us to promote the show. And uh, as always, thanks again. I'll see you next week. 